Well, good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, so it's Bible study. Glad that you all are joining me today. We had a great week last week. I thought that Revelation 13 was superb. Um, it really hadn't struck me until I was preparing for last week, just how good it was. And so I'm glad that we are all here together for the next chapter, chapter 14. Before we get into that chapter, I want to remind you all that I hope you will say hi to one another, check in with one another, especially if you're on a social media platform, um, ping one another so that we know you are here, make comments, ask questions. If you are not on a platform that has a chat or comment feature, then feel free to email Meredith M. Rose at stmichael.org as we are going through this reading today. Or if you watch it on demand, you can send her a comment or a question after the fact, and we kind of collect those for the next week. Um, I have a couple that we're going to do here at the beginning from last week because I think they kind of help tie off chapter 13 as we shift into chapter 14 today. But do make those questions or comments because it helps me and guides me as we go. Also, we have turned this study into a legitimate podcast. And I've gotten quite a few notes from people who say they love how much easier it is now to get the audio of this teaching. And so if that's helpful to you, or if you wanted to make a recommendation about this study to someone else, that might be an easy way for people to listen in the car when they're out for a walk, if they're exercising, whatever. If you visit stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study, there's information there, links to the podcast, or you can just simply search for Rector's Bible Study wherever you or anyone else listens to your podcasts. Let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today. We give you thanks for warmer weather that helps lessen the vulnerability of our neighbors. We ask that you open us up. Help us make space that your spirit can reach down inside us and fill us up, that your hand can guide us, and that as we study your sacred word, we can be inspired to live more and more as disciples of Christ. Please be with all those who are sick and in need of your healing touch. Surround them with people who can care for their needs and people who will extend your arms of love. Lift them up and help them to find peace, knowing that this life is not all there is and that even in death, life is not over but transformed. All of this and all of the blessings and the intercessions and the prayers that we hold in our hearts and minds we offer to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so we had a few questions from last week that I thought were, were good that we should address now as kind of a bridge from chapter 13 to chapter 14. So the first comes from, I love how this, how this email opens up. It says, first of all, wow, chapter 13 is a doozy, perfect for Lent, which I thought was really funny. Um, anyway, the question really is about how these letters from John got out. Because as this writer asks, you know, John's in prison, he's been exiled to Patmos. How does this vision written down and the letters get distributed? And so I know I've kind of hinted at this in the past, but it's a really good question. First, 
I want to say that church history says John did not die on Patmos, that it's almost certain John was released off Patmos at some point and likely died in Ephesus. Eh, we don't have what I would consider solid historic evidence of this, but instead we have just tradition. And so people who may have seen John after he wrote these letters in one of these churches, like in Ephesus, and then recorded that he died of old age. I did note a while back, <clears throat> John of Patmos, how do I want to say this? There are multiple Johns that come out of the early first century Christian tradition. You've got John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, who wrote the Gospel, and then John of Patmos, who wrote Revelation. There are plenty of traditions that hold that all of those Johns are the same person. It is technically possible that all of those Johns could be the same person. That would mean that John lived to be about 100 years old before he died. Possible? Yes. Probable? Certainly not. And so most scholars think that it's likely John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, and John of Patmos were three different people. You could make very reasonable historic arguments that perhaps there were two Johns. Maybe you had John the Apostle and then John the writer who wrote the Gospel and Revelation, but the style of the writings are not the same. Um, geographically speaking, that's not, that's almost certainly not what happened. So John of Patmos may have been a very, very old man having lived at the same time Jesus was alive, traveled around, wrote a gospel, and wrote this letter, but that's tradition and take it or leave it. Um, to me, I, it doesn't really matter. I don't think for some reason that John of Patmos writing Revelation is more valid because he's the same John who traveled with Jesus before his crucifixion. Um, I think you can be inspired by the Spirit and be chosen and filled up with the Spirit to do good work, like writing this letter or having a vision or whatever you want to call this, whether you walked with Jesus or not. So it, I don't think it one way or the other. Um, I wanted to say, however, that John did not die on Patmos, which means at least John could have physically carried these letters himself off the island and passed them out. That's probably not what happened. Rome had a decently, what might I call it, civilized prison system? <laughs> that kind of sounds silly because Rome in so many ways was not considerate or, um, you know, they certainly didn't believe in like fair human rights for prisoners or something like that. But there was this interesting concept of you could usually mail letters receive letters, receive visitors. I mean, there, there, was, there was sort of this odd dignity to imprisonment that doesn't mean people were treated well physically, but maybe they were given a bit more social connection or connectivity um, than may, oftentimes prisoners nowadays might be given. 
So John almost certainly was able to mail letters and receive letters, um, even if perhaps that wasn't possible. Writing notes, passing them to merchants could have been done. You know, people would have, merchants would have been sailing back and forth from the mainland to the island to deliver goods, even services. And could those goods have been delivered in certain ways in the prison so that John could have passed a note and had it travel back with these merchants to the mainland? Sure. Um, given that John was somebody, right, John really was a person known, he had planted these churches, it's very possible that <clears throat> Christians on the mainland knew John was there and intentionally tried subtle ways to pass him support whether that was money or goods or mail, whatever that is. And so it's pretty reasonable that it, these could have gotten out. Um, I mean, probable, perhaps, is even the better thing to say. So the other question that I got that I think really does bridge into chapter 14 was the use of Revelation 13 throughout history. Um, I don't think that the person who wrote this question was alone in perhaps drawing historic connections from the beast, the smark of the devil, to moments in the past 2,000 years when evil seemed to be really present in the world. And so this question is specifically about Nazi Germany. Um, how have or have theologians or historians connected the passage that we read about the beast, Revelation 13, to Nazi Germany, Nazi leadership, Nazi ideology, and that sort of stuff. Um, so the answer is not with much legitimacy. I mean, in the sense that, and I didn't talk much about this last week, the beast is really becomes the Antichrist, right? So in when we talk about the Antichrist, it really is representative of the beast, right? The dragon, that evil, that devil, who fuels the energy of the beast, the beast becoming that anti-Christ, the opposite of Christ figure in the world, to lead people astray. That really, I mean, of course, I think people probably said Hitler was the antichrist as, as that kind of just embodiment of evil, but antichrist in a legitimate sense or something like that, not really. Interestingly though, in some of the research I've done before now, and then of course after receiving this question, I kind of want to go back and look at a few things. What Nazi Germany did is use the Bible to reinforce its policies and its thought process. That's the real evil of what I would consider fascism in the 20th century in Europe um, that then of course bled all over the world. This sense that religion was used in order to dehumanize others. That religion was used in order to prop up authority that seemed so very wrong. And I remember as a young person being fascinated by the idea that normal, good people could be over time shaped into believing something so obviously horrible. If you think about it, certainly there were leaders like Hitler who just embodied all of that evil, right? I mean, it, it, there, were, there were no good intentions there. 
But the masterful manipulation of the common people to ultimately believe that what he believed was right and good is a stunning, uh, what do I want to say? Should for us today still be a warning about the susceptibility of our humanity to powerful authority figures, to using religion as a means of hurting other people, separating other people, putting other people down, or defending who we are in some way. And when I was reading through some of these things, I, I had forgotten that early on in Germany, after Hitler and his party had taken gained some authority, but before what we would think of as kind of Nazi Germany arose, there was a huge amount of pushback in Germany about his policies because they seemed so very dangerous. And so what he did was he began to use scripture to prop up his agenda. And so one of those passages comes from Romans 13. Um, Romans 13 Verses 1 and 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That idea from Paul's letter to the Romans began to prop up a theological defense of what ultimately became the horrors of Nazi Germany. And there are people in leadership in churches who were propped up and given big pulpits to be able to preach this exact idea, this idea that nobody gains authority unless effectively being ordained by God, right? God gives authority. And so if someone gains authority, it's obviously from God. And so if you resist those who are in authority, you're actually resisting God himself. Well, I think that we can all understand the danger in that idea. Part of what scripture offers us is a touchstone, is a, a check and balance to our humanity, which we know is problematic, right? I mean, the entire idea about Jesus as the Messiah, the salvation of the world, is that the world needs saving. Well, who needs saving? We need saving, right? We cannot of our own volition save ourselves. We left our own devices become very problematic. We can never quite get it right. And sometimes we get it wrong in very small, innocent ways. And sometimes we get it wrong in some really, really horrible ways. And what God offers in the Bible, what God offers through the Spirit, what God offers by holding one another accountable in communities like church communities, is a check against the ego that we all have, thinking that we are very right. All of us in our own way are susceptible to our ego knowing that we, or believing that we, in some way, know all rightness. 
Being in community is a challenge because being in community necessarily means we will not always get our way, our opinions will not always be in the majority, that the judgments we have about the world will not always be the same judgments as the community, and that can be super frustrating because most of us watching this right now have a huge amount of agency. And by that I mean we get to do mostly what we want to do. We are good at life. We are expert at things. And it's very easy for us to know we have expertise in a particular part of life and then begin to allow ourselves to be duped into thinking we have expertise in every other part of life rather than understanding that in a community, everybody's got an expertise about something and most of us don't have expertise about most things. That's why we come together and we all share what we know together and learn from one another because none of us know everything. And that kind of seems like such a basic idea, but I want you to know, as the pastor of a large church, there are a lot of people who think they know everything. I don't know if you know that, <laughs> if you've ever experienced that at all, but a lot of people think they know a lot about everything. And it can end up undermining our community. It can end up undermining our faithfulness as disciples if we lose the humility that we are imperfect, that we are lacking, and that we need God. We need Christ in our lives to help fill our gaps and lift us up and carry us when we are weak. It's not just something to put on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. It's true. And so I think this is important as a concept because what I'm about to say about the first section of chapter 14 might be a little challenging in this same way. So thank you for those great questions. I did receive more and I'm sorry we won't get to all of them right now, but I, I have them. I have not lost them um, and hopefully we plug those in as we go. Today's lesson is going to be probably only two parts. So chapter 14 is divided really into three important sections, but chapter 15 is quite short. And so I'm sort of thinking we're going to do the first two-thirds of chapter 14, save the third, last third of chapter 14 to do with all of chapter 15 next week, but let's see how much time we have. So sections 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 14. Section 1, following the Lamb. Section 2, the three angels. And section 3, the earth's harvest. All right? So we've got following the Lamb, the three angels, and the earth's harvest. Let's kick it off with following the Lamb. Chapter 14, we'll begin at verse 1. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these 
who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. We'll pause there. Chapter 14 recalls a very specific image, phrase, or command from the Gospels. Much of Christianity has been based on believing. Okay, so here's, here's what I mean. Over the last 2,000 years, as people have, from the first century, right where John writes this letter, all the way to the 21st century, tried to unpack and expose and, and simplify, in a sense, the basics of Christianity. Now, obviously, plenty of theology is not simple, but there's always this desire in Christianity of evangelism. We want more people to be part of this journey, to be part of the body of Christ on earth. And so as people have worked out what it means to be Christian, much of what the church, most denominations have done, is really emphasize believing. I have said before that Christianity is often described as an orthodoxy, orthodox right belief, rather than in Judaism and in Islam, an orthopraxy, which is right practice. So Christianity is really rooted in this idea that we believe first, whereas Judaism and Islam, the other Abrahamic traditions, are more about the practice, the proper practice, than about the belief. What is interesting is that the focus on belief, although completely valid and defensible, is not actually what Jesus focused on. And you've heard me say many times, we as Christians, we as Christ followers, should start with Jesus. And if anything else, well-intentioned or not, spirit-led or not, seems to be different than what Jesus did or taught, we need to kind of go back to Jesus. That's where we need to start. Jesus, most often, said, follow me. And by most often, I mean many times more often than Jesus said, believe in me, Jesus said, follow me. So Jesus himself was expressing what really is the orthopraxy, the right practice of Judaism, which is an emphasis in the doing, not the believing. Now, that does not mean Jesus did not talk about belief. He absolutely did. And there are multiple places in the Gospels where Jesus talked about belief and right belief and encouraged that people believe in his message and his purpose as the Messiah, as the chosen, as the Christ. What I am saying to you is he did many, many more times compel people to follow rather than believe. So Jesus really did kind of strike a balance and leaned into belief a bit more than what the current Jewish theology would have done, but he never did so more than follow. And why is this important? Following is important for our humanity. Following is what shapes our believing. Doing shapes believing. That isn't theology, it's just psychology, right? We know, based on our human habits and anything, our belief, our thought process, our habits, our lifestyle choices, you name it, who we become 
and what we believe is absolutely connected to how we choose to act. And I see this all the time, right? I, we can talk a blue streak about loving your neighbor, but if you never meet your neighbor, then it's just theoretical. And it's so easy to objectify or dehumanize your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor. However, you go meet your neighbor, right? Serve meals at a homeless shelter, tutor children who come from homes that aren't able to support them, or meet food needs in food desert. I mean, you name it. You go and you meet a neighbor, which could literally be the person who lives next door too, by the way. Then all of a sudden, the issue becomes a person. And by issues becoming people, what we find is that the doing of love and compassion and service actually shapes us into believing the stuff Jesus talked about. And it's belief in the Jesus of the Gospels, much more so than belief in the Jesus of historians and theologians. This is a hard concept because we have been so conditioned as Christians to emphasize belief. And we have been so conditioned by Christi Christianity over 2,000 years to emphasize belief because of one big reason. We never want to burn in hell, okay? And I say that, and it's not a joke. For most of Christian history, what we are about to look at here in this chapter of 14 of Revelation <clears throat> really emphasizes the idea of judgment and hell and damnation and all of that stuff. That captivated Christian theology for so long, so long. We have centuries and centuries of sermons and preachings and teachings and doctrines and dogma and you name it that is grounded on this idea of not going to hell. For those of you who have been around me for a bit, um, you know that I have said things in the past like, you know, it would really be great if I could have been a pastor in the past when people were really afraid of burning in hell because it's so motivating, right? Come on, it'd be so much easier. Um, instead, we are now at a place in time in this early 21st century where effectively the 20th century deconstructed this idea of fearing God, fearing hell, fearing damnation, you name it. And now we've gotten to a point where Christianity mostly is anchored in a positivity. It's anchored in the promise of grace and love and heaven rather than the fear of judgment and damnation and hell. That's a good shift. I mean, I, yes, I'm, I'm in for that. that. That is fine. But part of that shift should not be a complete disowning of what is truly evil in the world. And I say that not to be fantastic, but to actually root ourselves in 
what we see here as I would say the deeper truth of Revelation, which is evil is a real thing. And we need to be vigilant not to ignore the reality of evil. Okay, so I just want to note right now, I am so far off my notes. I am trying casually to scroll through my notes while I'm talking to you, and I have no idea where I even am. I, you know, that's the problem with a preacher, is I just get rolling, and I go down some tangent, and I don't know where I am. Um, mm -mm -mm. Let me see. I want to go back to the actual, you know what would be a good idea? Let's go back to the actual text of Revelation. How about that? Okay, so we're going to go back to these first few verses of chapter 14. And let's talk about some of the specific things that are mentioned here. So first off, as this chapter opens up, John is looking and he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 marked with God's name. Okay. Let's unpack all these different components. First, let's start with Mount Zion. Where is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is one of the hills in Jerusalem. And I say one of the hills in Jerusalem because it's actually changed over time. Mount Zion initially was the eastern hill outside of what is today the old city of Jerusalem. It was a defensible hill. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that Jerusalem was picked to be on a high place to make it more easily defensible. So there are a few roads that enter the city, but then there are these valleys that fall away from the city, which means if an army meant to siege Jerusalem, they would have to go down into a valley and then come back up against the walls of the city. That's a hard task. And so Jerusalem was built with Mount Zion being on the eastern side to create a very defensible position for the people inside the city. Well, as Jerusalem grew and the temple, the original temple was built, the temple, the mount on which the temple was built became Mount Zion. And so quite Literally, God, who was physically present in the temple, was present on Mount Zion. So Mount Zion became God's holy mountain because the temple was built there and the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, was where God was physically present on earth. And so God was present physically on Mount Zion. That became God's mountain. We know, of course, that that first temple was destroyed, that Israel taken into exile, second temple was rebuilt on top of that temple mount. In the concept of Mount Zion in the first century and a little beyond shifted a bit. Today, if you were to go to Jerusalem, based on that shift, Mount Zion, the new Mount Zion is actually to the west of the temple. It is where David's palace is believed to have stood, west of where the current Temple Mount is. So where is Mount Zion that John's referring to? Probably it's the Temple Mount because that was God's mountain more or less in the first century. I think that's really what they would have assumed. So Mount Zion is that sacred place where God was physically present on earth to the Jewish people, okay? Now, who does John see up on Mount Zion? The lamb with the 144,000. Now we know that 144, they the people who were sealed, marked 
with God's name and God's son's name, right? The lamb's name. And they are following the lamb. That is really what is key in these first verses. These 144,000 faithful people are already redeemed. So in the grand arc story of salvation, these are effectively the first fruits of redemption. These are the very first faithful people, but they're not going to be the only people. So it's not limited to 144,000. There are groups of Christians around that talk about there only being 144,000 who are saved. No, no. The 144,000 are the ones who begin that process. They are the first faithful, not the only. We then are called into being with them. And how do we get with them? We follow the lamb wherever he goes. So in verse 4, we see why those people were chosen. Why they are there. Because they follow the lamb wherever he goes. So all of that tangent I talked about at the beginning, between following and believing, we see the impact of the following reiterated here in Revelation. Be very clear. John, in his vision, is not really talking about believing. John's talking about doing, following, the actual act of going with and doing with the Lamb, with the Messiah, with Jesus. John is representative of the most common understanding of Jesus as Messiah in the first century. We know that the church evolved that idea much more into belief, not practice. But it doesn't mean that Jesus, in the vision John has here in Revelation, emphasizes belief over practice. These people are here because they followed the Lamb wherever they went. I think that's probably mostly what I want to talk about for this first section. Um, I would still love your thoughts and your comments, questions. Um, So go ahead and think through if you've got any questions or comments right now, because um, as I was preparing this and reading about, you know, there's the lamb on the mountain and 144, and then we just had the beast and we're going to get into the angels and their messages of hell and judgment and all the other stuff. It made me laugh because I have gotten a number of comments from people who say, like, I'm in and I'm with you in Bible study, but man, Revelation is not for me, right? This is just too crazy. Or comments that say, I just can't understand how Revelation matters to me right now. How does Revelation impact my life right now? And that is such a great question to ask because like we said at the very beginning of this, Revelation on the surface is fantastic, right? It is fantasy and it is huge and it is cosmic and it is just almost incomprehensible in its grandeur. However, I hope that as we have stepped through these chapters, you do get, you are becoming more and more comfortable going beneath the surface of the fantastic down to the roots of what is 
the realness of the message here. That taking this at face value and that it's kind of wild is a perfectly good critique. But at its best, Revelation is so much deeper than the grand cosmic battles or scale of its story. Going beneath the surface of Revelation means that we are digging into the deeper truth that life as a person who follows God is hard. The world is not easy. And even though we are so, so good at creating security in our world, none of us can avoid heartbreak and stress and fear and pain and on and on and on. The danger for us is that Christianity has been so absorbed and co-opted and manipulated by the world, it's really hard to figure out what to do, how to be faithful people. And I think that's what this Bible study is really all about. Yes, I want you to know what's in these books. I want you to know the verses. I want you to know the stories, the names, the places, all that good stuff, historic context, all of that's good. None of that is as important as trying to dig and dig into our own discipleship and our own spiritual core and center and relationship with God. What we do as disciples and how we live is completely dependent on how we perceive the world around us. In a sense, back in the first century, they almost had an easier time understanding how to do this because the world did not own or use Christianity at all. So they had a pretty clear way of knowing what was a Christian path and what was a worldly path. Today, in the 21st century, oh my gosh, that is, that is as hard as it gets. That is as serious a task as we as disciples can take on. Because when we look around our world, so many people, leaders, newsmakers, you name it, authority figures, people with power, use Christianity in manipulative ways that without vigilance and without a real depth and anchor of our own faithfulness, we will be absolutely led astray. We will be taken way off the deep end. We will follow straight into a deep hole and we'll not even know where we are. I mean, the world is so good at this that it's almost like, you know, that old phrase, you know, how can a fish define water? You know, a fish doesn't know it's in water. It's just all there is. The world has gotten so good at co-opting Christianity that it's hard for us to even see what has been done to us. That's where a community of faith becomes so critically important. It helps us stay aware as we can 
to what is the world and what is of God, right? That, that idea that we need to be in the world and not of the world, ooh, that is so tricky and so hard and none of us get it right. But together we can do it better. Okay. Um, oh, Pam just asked um, about getting confused with the Johns of the New Testament. You are, you are not alone. Um, make a list of the Johns and email us. That, you know, okay, that's a good idea. I will try and prep a little note that Meredith can send in her email next Monday that might help clear up the Johns. Um, I love that, the Johns. So we'll, we'll do that for next week. Um, hey, Meredith, remind me to do that next week. Thank you. Okay, let's press on. We've got part two of three for chapter 14, and this is going to be fine. We'll leave part three to do with chapter 15 next week. Let's jump in with the three angels, verse six. Ready? Turn to verse six and let's go. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, and for anyone who receives the mark of its name." Ooh, that's some good Bible stuff. Here in this passage, we get three messages from three angels, and these are important. So we're going to go through one at a time, first being relatively simple, right? And like I said before, this is really leaning us into the idea of hell. When you talk about, when you hear people speak of burning in hell, that's it right there. It's these angels saying, hey, you follow the beast and you turn away from the lamb. And guess what? Forever and ever, you will suffer with fire and sulfur and the smoke of your torment will go up forever and ever. I mean, this is, this is the burning in, fi- in hell forever. So let's start by saying, <laughs> let's start by taking a pause. <sighs> okay, this kind of hell and damnation and fire and brimstone talk can give us a little pause. Um, And I say that because, as I noted earlier, we've had centuries of influence on Christian thought that focuses on this idea of hellfire, that uses it to influence and motivate people in a way that just isn't really Christ-like. Right? I mean, that's the easiest thing to say. Jesus does mention judgment. Yes, he does. And Jesus talks about judgment as being a result of God's cleaning up of the world. That, yes, people need to be followers or not. And if people follow him, good. And if not, 
bad. Jesus does not go so far as to describe the physicality of what the post-judgment reality is going to be. We get that from, you know, a few of the Pauline letters and others, and especially from Revelation. The influence of this passage from Revelation cannot be overstated. Nor can the influence of that kind of fire and brimstone be understated as a, an influence that has confused and tortured and scared good people for a really long time. In Jesus, the primary image we get is grace and love and forgiveness and generosity. In Revelation, we hear of this judgment of God and we begin to draw a straight line between Jesus's teachings on judgment and John's vision of that judgment. That kind of correlation is not inherently wrong, but it is exactly what I say over and over again, which is go back to what you see Jesus do most and make sure that that remains number one, right? So if Jesus does something five or ten times and something else once, it is perfectly reasonable and perhaps even necessary that we take the thing he did five to ten times and give it more weight than the thing he did or talked about once. It's not that Jesus was wrong that one time. It's just that Jesus did not emphasize it so we likely shouldn't emphasize it either. This idea of judgment and damnation, right? I mean, it's not even just judgment. It is this sense that there is a righteous pain involved with having not followed Christ that will last forever and ever. This idea has been so scary that preachers have been so effective for so long that it's hard for the church to break out of this idea and try to relate in a better way to what people really experience when they read and learn about Christ. An example of this comes from my good friend, Jonathan Edwards, who was a preacher in the 1700s, and he gave some classic colonial American barn burner sermons, one of which is one you've likely heard, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When's the last time you read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? I've read it multiple times because I was a graduate theology student for a long time. And there are, there are two passages, there are so many I could have pulled out, um, but there are two that I just love here, and I just want to read for you an example of Early American Christian theology. Okay, Jonathan Edwards, in his time, was a preacher of preachers. I mean, he had a massive pulpit. People would come from all over to hear him give sermons. He would travel, and he would have revivals. I mean, he was an influence that cannot be understated. His classic... Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God deals with this idea of judgment and hell and how 
his communication about God's character and God's spirit will likely sound a little harsh. Here are two passages. The first harkens back to the discussion on, you know, focusing on belief, like that idea in Christianity where belief is really the most important thing. And the second is just this graphic understanding of judgment. Ready? This comes from sinners from the hand, in the hands of an angry God. Some have imagined and pretended that God's promises are effectual for a man in his natural state, if that man is truly earnest in his seeking and knocking. But it is visibly clear that God is under no obligation to keep such a person from eternal destruction, not even for one moment. It doesn't matter how religious the man is or how many prayers he makes, until he believes in Christ, God is not obligated in any way to protect him. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all that keeps that arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. <laughs> I understand why there were dramatic altar calls back in the early time when you had these great awakenings around Christianity because, oh my goodness, uh, an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Okay, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? I will run up to the altar right now to not have God's arrow be drunk with my blood, right? I'm, that kind of theological impact is still causing us trouble today. When we look at this passage from chapter 14, we see where this influence and inspiration comes from. Let's really look back again at what these three angels are saying. Before we look specifically at their words, let's just put ourselves into the historic context that is the exile, right? We know from our study of Daniel, the exile was critical. And so just quick recap, Israelites going to exile in Babylon, and we've got prophets from the Old Testament who speak to the Israelites in exile and encourage them to remain hopeful, encourage them to remain faithful to a God who will deliver them from their pain. And this is not an easy thing to do because as I have noted in the past, Judaism, ancient Judaism, is, yes, monotheistic, kind of. They're monotheistic in the sense that they believe in, they pray to and worship one God. But not monotheistic in the sense that they don't believe that there are other gods. So, for the Jews, Yahweh's it. Yahweh's number one. But of course, the Babylonians have gods, and the Egyptians have gods, and the Phoenicians have gods, and all the other stuff. And when the Israelites, the Jews, are taken into captivity into Babylon, what really happens is they begin to question Yahweh's strength and authority over the world. Because obviously, if Yahweh was the number one God, they would not have been taken into exile. And so these prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, speak into this anxiety and fear and say, do not lose your faith in Yahweh. You 
bad people are the ones that did wrong, and you're the reason why you were taken into exile. It's not about Yahweh's weakness. It's about your badness. Then, of course, deliverance happens, and the faith in Yahweh is renewed, and now we come to Revelation, and there is this sense that Rome is the new Babylon, and that when John writes of Babylon over these, in the next few chapters, in the next few weeks, John's just talking about Babylon in order to speak of Rome. And so John's making this absolute direct connection between Jews in exile in Babylon and these early Christians under the pressure and torment of Rome. And he's saying, it seems as if God is weak. It seems as if if God loved you, God would not let this happen. And it's the same thing that happened in exile with the Jews. And as those prophets said, so I now say to you, remain faithful and confident that God is not weak and that in God's time, all things will be made new. We will be delivered from any pain and heartbreak and struggle and anxiety and torment we receive in this life. So we may not be first century Christians with the threat of Rome, but we are absolutely 21st century Christians with the threat of the evil impact of the world that draws us from the love of God. Resist. Do not let fear dictate how you practice your faith in Christ. For John, these angels' messages are reiterating a very deep and profound truth that was a reminder to the Jews in exile in Babylon of the promise that was given to Abraham that was renewed in Egypt and in the exile and in the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome and is renewed again for us today. Let's look at what these angels really say. These angels bring an eternal gospel, right? These angels are bringing literal eternal good news to the people. What is the news? The first angel says God, the creator, is at last going to sort everything out, right? So the first angel says, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. God's going to work it out. Judgment has come, and what judgment is, is it's not condemnation. Remember, judgment is a making things right, a seeking justice. That is what judgment is really all about. God's going to fix, sort out everything that is wrong. Second, Babylon has fallen. After all of the efforts made by the evil one against the nations, Babylon has fallen. See, the angel says, Babylon the great made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of fornication, <laughs> which is just such a beautifully biblical way of saying Babylon did her best to try and corrupt God's people, and now God's on the scene and God's faithful have made it. Just like now, the world does 
everything it can to corrupt God's faithful people, like us. Our resistance to that corruption, our seeking after love and grace and forgiveness that we see embodied in Christ, that sacrificial agape love in the world, seeking after that is what helps us resist the impact of the evil. Finally, the third angel says that God's judgment will be just, thorough, and complete. That third angel came and said, all those who worship the beast in its image, receiving the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they will drink the wine of God's wrath. People who follow the Lamb are sealed and marked with God's name. The people who follow the beast are sealed and marked with his name. In a sense, what Revelation really gets at in this passage is, a, is an intimidating idea. We go down one of these paths. Not choosing is choosing. We live in the world. If we don't choose something beyond this world, we are choosing the world. The world is fallen and messy and broken and at, at its worst, evil. What Jesus comes to do is invite us into God's goodness, into God's promise into God's grace and love and largesse. And God's reality is one that is whole and complete and healed and beautiful. Every day we have the option to choose these paths and choosing the way of love, choosing the way of Christ is the way that we resist following the path of the evil in the world. And here's what's so critically important. We cannot do this alone. We need one another, and we need our Savior to guide us. You've heard me say before, the old idea that God doesn't give us more than we can handle is wrong. We have more than we can handle. The evil of this world is more than we can handle. Thank God, God gave us Jesus. And I think that's a good ending for today. We're going to finish up chapter 14 next week with chapter 15. Reminder that we are off March 17th. So circle that on your calendar. No lesson March 17th. That is spring break. But otherwise, we are here all the way through the first Wednesday of May. Visit stmichael.org rbs to get your bookmark schedule if you do not have it. And I will look forward to seeing you all back here next Wednesday. Until then, God bless. See you soon.